Good morning, Grace. This will be my last Sunday reading. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, here we are. Okay. Lord, help us. Okay. Uh, Scripture today is from John 13, 1 through 17. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking the towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Thanks, Lord. Glory. Glory is a category that we operate with all the time. It's not a word that probably comes to your mind a lot outside of the church, but again, it is a category that you deal with every day. In its most basic sense, glorious is synonymous with praiseworthy. Even if the word itself never pops into your head, you consider something glorious if you're impressed by it. If you look up to it, if you honor it, and you do that one way or another all the time. If you consider glory in those terms, it's probably easy to name a few things you consider glorious. See if you can draw some to your mind. The greatest athlete in your favorite sport, or the greatest win from your favorite team, or someone who's exceptionally creative, or particularly knowledgeable and accomplished in an area you care about. Someone with extraordinary wealth, beautiful sunsets, or rugged mountains the pageantry of the Olympics, an act of significant bravery or self-sacrifice, a decisive military victory, a full orchestra performing a significant piece of music. Typically, we equate glory with excellence, accomplishment, victory, size, strength, beauty, knowledge, and the like. So again, let me ask you, and I want you to answer this in your own head, What do you consider glorious? Forget for a minute you're in church. 
What you should say is an answer, but what do you consider glorious? Who or what would you describe as particularly admirable or praiseworthy? And to be clear again, what you do on a daily basis is what I'm after, not necessarily what you know you should say in this moment. Well, why does this matter? It matters because I ended last week's sermon by letting you all know that that marked the end, that the end of John 12 marked the end of the first major section in John. Remember what that, that was called? Book of Signs. Reason was lots of signs, right? And so the end of the book of signs, the end of 12, 13 marks the beginning of the book of glory, which we have to imagine includes lots of glory. You guys are with me. This is, this is great. So with a name like that, and given the things that I just shared with you, we might expect something excellent and victorious and powerful and obviously praiseworthy right out of the gate, right? Indeed, our passage for this morning, the beginning of the book of glory, is filled with glory. It is at its heart a description of the glory of Jesus. And yet, if you were paying attention at all when Lauren read, you notice that it is not the usual kind of glory, though. As we've seen over and over in John, Jesus' glory is different than the kind that the world craved and expected, especially of the Christ. To be sure, you have to keep reading the writings of John to know that Jesus is glorious and excellence, accomplishment, victory, size, strength, beauty, and knowledge. But his glory is also praiseworthy in other ways as well. Ways entirely unexpected, even by his own people, even by his own disciples. The big idea of this passage, Grace, if you want to hang on to something, hang on to this. Jesus' glory includes a love-to-the-end foot-washing kind of glory. And the main takeaway for us then, three things, learn to love true glory. We love a lot of fake glory. Let's learn in greater measure this morning to love true glory, to listen to and obey Jesus in all things. And all things is the second main takeaway. And third, to follow Jesus' example in expressing humble, sacrificial, servant love wherever we go. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you that this is, in my mind, the perfect beginning to the book of glory. Thank you that it jars us out of our normal, often worldly understanding of glory into heavenly glory. I pray that you would open our eyes as we just sang, as we just sang, open our eyes to behold your wonder. We need you to do that. If you do not do that now, Spirit, if you are not pleased to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, We'll miss the glory that is here, and not only that, but we'll miss the opportunity we have to respond to it in a manner pleasing to you. May we not miss that. May you hear the words we just sung and be pleased to answer them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned in the introduction, this is primarily a passage about the servant glory of Jesus and his followers. But the first two verses, though, are truly remarkable. John, almost in passing, it feels almost in passing, and John introduces servant glory with two extremely significant statements. One concerns the nature of Jesus' love, and the other concerns the reach of the devil. Since they're not the main point of the passage, I don't want to spend a lot of time on them, 
but because they're so significant, they deserve more than just a sentence or two. So let's look at verse one and dig in. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart the world, to the, to depart out of this world to the Father, and here's the key. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The events of our passage took place on Thursday evening. Jesus was, would be arrested later that evening, crucified the next day. More specifically, they took, took place just prior to what we've come to call the Lord's Supper. John spoke of this time as a kind of finish line for Jesus in his earthly ministry. His earthly ministry was almost done. In a matter of mere hours, he would be crucified. Within a few days, he would rise from the dead. And within a few weeks, he would ascend to the Father's right hand. What really stands out, however, is how John described the nature of Jesus' finish. His hour had come with Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. It is good for us, Grace, to fix our hearts and our minds on the two ways that this is particularly true. Jesus loved one to the end of his life and two to the end of our sin. It's not the main point, although this would have made a great sermon. But I do want to press on each of those just a little bit. The primary thrust of John's meaning is that Jesus loved the world from before the world was even made until the end of his life. He was sent in love. And he never wavered in his love for those given to him by the Father. In spite of all the trials, is what John means. If you've read to this point in John, if you've been with us, you know that there's many trials. In spite of all the trials, in spite of all the trials, grace, and all the difficulties, and all the rejections, and all the denials, and all the confusion, and all the unbelief, and those who claim to believe and then wandered away, Jesus remains steadfastly filled with his love for his own who are in the world. Just think about this for a minute. You've seen this. You've probably experienced this. For all kinds of lesser reasons, all kinds of men and women have left love. Discouragement, criticism, pride, loneliness, unmet expectations, and a host of other reasons have caused people to leave churches and ministries and even stop pronouncing faith in Christ. But Jesus not only persevered to the end. Any of you ever run a really long race? You're just glad when it's over, right? More than that, though, more than that, at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, he did more than just hit the tape. He persevered in love. More than limping to the cross, frustrated and discouraged, he was filled with love all the way. Grace, let us look to Jesus and learn this kind of love. Let us fight in the Spirit's power to love sacrificially, gladly laying our lives down for one another, selflessly, willingly setting aside our own preferences and rights, and as we see here most explicitly, persistently, over time and through any amount of rejection. That's how Jesus loves you. How? Ask yourself, how could you love like that today? Jesus loved his people to the end of his life. And second, the second aspect of John's meaning here was that he loved to the end of our sin. I remember being particularly moved by this idea in the book, Gentle and Lowly. I know a lot of you read that as well. Remember these. Ask yourself, does this first, I'm going to read two, two paragraphs. The first, ask yourself if this, is, if this describes your understanding of God's love. Perhaps as believers today, 
we know that God loves us. Do you know that? You're a Christian. You know that's part of what it makes you a Christian. But perhaps as believers today, we know that God loves us. We we truly believe that on some level. But if we are to more closely examine how we actually relate to the Father in any given moment, which actually reveals our theology, in other words, what we really believe is revealed in how we interact with the Father moment by moment, whatever we say we believe on paper, here's what many of us tend to believe. This is this is from Gentle and Lowly. Many of us tend to believe that it is a love infected with disappointment. He loves us, but it's a flustered love. Here's, I think, the best line. We see him looking down on us with personal affection. It's real. that There is genuine affection from God to us. We see him looking down on us with personal affection, but slightly raised eyebrows. Is that how you view the love of God for you? Is that how you understand Jesus having loved you to the end? That is not how the love of God works for us in Christ's grace. Instead, just a few pages later, the author of Gentle and Lowly quotes Charles Spurgeon, which is always a good idea, by the way. He helps us to see the truth concerning God's love for us, Christ's love for us, to the end love for us. Here's what he says. Christ loved you before all worlds. He loved you before all worlds. Long ere the day, star flung his ray across the darkness. Before the wing of angel had flapped the unnavigated ether. I don't talk like that. Spurgeon does. Before aught of creation had struggled from the womb of nothingness. God, even our God, listen, believe this. This is what John meant. This is what Jesus does. God, even our God, has set his heart upon his all his children. Since that time, has he once swerved? Has he once turned aside? Once changed? No, children of God. It is our solemn duty to say no and bear witness to his faithfulness. Grace, find deep and abiding love in the fact that if your hope is in Jesus, Jesus loves you fully and completely at all times, and through all your sin. This is an important line. Listen carefully. Your next sin might be a surprise to you, whether it comes in five minutes or five hours or whenever your next sin comes, it might be a surprise to you. But it most certainly, hear this and believe this, will not be a surprise to Jesus. He already knew of it more than you ever will when he lovingly chose to take the full measure of that sin and all of your sins, the full measure of the Father's wrath for it upon himself. And so he loves you fully. Oh, that we would know truly the meaning of John's simple introductory words, having loved his own who were were in the world, he loved them to the end. Would you dare to combine two things that are hard to combine? Would you dare to combine a growing hatred of your own sin on the fact that it, based on the fact, or on account of the fact that it required the death of the innocent Son of God, who did nothing but love you, with a growing receiving reception of Jesus' love on account of the fact that he promised it to the very end of your sin? Grace Church would be different. We would. That leads to the second verse and the second profound statement made by John on the way to his main point, the servant glory of Jesus. I'm going to spend even less time on this because we pick right back up with it in the next section next week. Nevertheless, I do want to draw your attention to something that is important. 
This, there is a sense, Grace, in which the devil has malevolent access to hearts. I'm not going to even really tell you what that means other than that it is true this morning. You got to come back next week. Little, little teaser. During supper, when the devil was, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, that is Jesus. We live in a world that is functionally materialistic. Even within the church, we're often skeptical of any truly supernatural claims. While there's certainly some warrant to some skepticism, given how some people have misused this, there is no way to be a Christian and deny that God himself, Father and Spirit, along with much of what God has made, is spiritual, non-material, has no body, no physical matter. There really are grace, angels and demons. There really are cherubim and seraphim. And there really is a devil who goes biblically by the name of Satan and Lucifer and the evil one, among others. What's more, and in ways we don't totally understand, but John mentions almost in passing, there is interaction between us and the spiritual beings that God has made. And more to the point, there is a battle between the spiritual forces of evil and the people of God. God's word is clear that Satan and the demons who fell with him are active in the world today to tempt and deceive and destroy those who do and would hope in Jesus. Again, I'm going to come back to this next week when Jesus speaks directly to this, and it's the way it played out in Judas. But for now, I want to invite you to take some time this week to carefully and prayerfully consider the fact that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Although verse 18 makes it plain, that's next week, we'll come to that, that God is ultimately sovereign over this, at times at least. In Job-like fashion, the devil has access to hearts. He is able to tempt people even Jesus, with sin. So so let us pray, therefore, that we would stand firm in the power of the Spirit, no matter the enemy's tactics, because we know where this is going, in the victory of Jesus. All right, that's all free bonus content for you guys. Here's the heart of the passage, the servant glory of Jesus. It's somewhat neatly divided into four parts. Foot washing glory displayed, misunderstood, explained, and commanded. Where are we going? Jesus' foot washing glory displayed, misunderstood. Displayed, misunderstood, explained, and commanded. Displayed. Imagine for a moment, kids especially. Kids, do you know what omnipotence means? It means you have all the power. All right? You have all the power. I want you to imagine for a moment that you had omnipotence, all the power for one hour. All right? One hour, all the power. What would you use it for? What would you do if you had all the power for one hour? Get rich, fix problems, crush evil, save souls, get a promotion, win the Super Bowl, come on lions, rescue babies, catch a lot of fish, get the guy or the girl. There's lots of options, some good, many bad. Where would you start? All right, let me get to the heart of the matter. At what point on your list? At what minute of your hour would washing people's feet be part of what you use your omnipotence for? Is that happening? Is that in the top 50? Is that minute 50, 51? Grace, do not miss the fact that John begins this section saying that all things had been handed over to Jesus by the Father, and so he 
All power, all authority, all glory, all things are yours, Jesus. And so he crushed the devil and defeated death immediately. Nope, he washed feet. Don't miss the reality that Jesus' first act in the book of glory was to serve in the most humble way possible. Again, look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was soon to go back to God, rose from supper. You just, where's this going? This is, this has got to be huge, right? He took off his outer garment. Now, uh, that's not where I saw that going. And took a towel and tied it around his waist. Definitely not where I thought that was going. Then he poured water into a basin and began washing the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let me start again. If you were writing this story, channeling channeling your inner Tolkien, where does verse 3 go next? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that's a good start, and he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, and what's next? How does your story go? Probably not this way. In Jesus' day, people mainly wore sandals, and the roads were mainly dirt and animal droppings. For that reason, it was a normal, sometimes several times a day thing to have your feet washed when you entered someone's home or entered into the temple or the synagogue. And for reasons you can probably imagine, that was the job of the lowest servant. In fact, it was such a lowly job that Jewish servants were usually prohibited from foot washing, and it was a job that would be given to the lowest of the Gentile servants. Even in some rare act of exceptional devotion, maybe a a child would wash their father's feet or a student his teacher's feet. There was some type of a category for the disciples washing Jesus' feet, for instance. But foot washing was always, remember this, write this down mentally, always, always the lower washing the feet of the higher. And so what Jesus did, therefore, was in every way preposterous. We'll see this in just a minute in Peter's response. This just wasn't how it was done on any level. And in the midst, and in the mind of every Jew, this most certainly was not how it would be done when the Christ came. And so, understandably, it was misunderstood. Verses 6 through 9, recognizing this, Peter was appalled. According to the cultural standards of the day, Peter was right to respond as he did when Jesus came to him. Astonished by this act, he questioned Jesus. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, (laughs) but afterward you will. Peter definitely didn't understand what Jesus was doing. And therefore, even after what Jesus said, he continued his forceful reply. He said, he said to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Again, Peter responded to everything he'd seen and been taught to this point. His response was in his mind and in some ways truly a sign of reverence and humility. There was a way in which this was a sign of reverence and humility. To not resist this would have culturally been prideful in a significant way. But as grace is always the case, when we receive a command from the Lord, whether we understand it or not, it is 
another, more significant kind of pride than the kind that culture would put in front of us to question or refuse. Therefore, verse 8, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. To paraphrase, Jesus said, Peter, if you do not let me do what I have set out to do, you cannot have fellowship with me. Am I your Lord or are your customs your Lord? You will either acknowledge my right to command and serve in culturally countercultural ways or you cannot be my follower. Moreover, moreover, I'm talking about more than merely washing your feet. I'm offering a kind of washing. You don't understand what I'm doing washing your feet, but I'm offering a kind of washing that you do not yet understand. And apart from that, no one can come for me. Come to me. Still not grasping the deeper meaning, Peter at least started to recalibrate on the surface significance of what Jesus was saying. He knew he needed to do what Jesus said. Jesus is, as we'll see, teacher and Lord. And so Simon Peter said to him, verse 9, Lord, then, in typical Peter Morris Gump-like fashion, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Again, to paraphrase Peter, or to paraphrase, Peter said, okay, okay, Jesus, I, I think I get where you're going here. He didn't, but sort of. I don't understand, but you are my master, and fellowship with you is more important to me than cultural conformity. If allowing you to fulfill the servant role, which I don't really get, if that's what you want from me, wash me thoroughly. I'll not only allow you to wash my feet, but the rest of me as well. There's much to learn from this response, Grace Church. This is how it ought to be for you and I as well. Understanding Jesus' reasoning behind his commands is not a prerequisite for us to obey them. More to the point, not fully grasping the logic of the commands of God is in no way an excuse to disobey them. Indeed, as many who have followed Jesus for any length of time can attest, and as Jesus promised Peter, understanding often only comes after obedience. We must be a people who carefully study God's word and obey it. We cannot, under God, we cannot honor God if we don't know what he has said, but we also cannot under, honor God if there are large gaps between what we know and what we do. God has designed our obedience to work in lockstep with our understanding. I want to get even more practical. When you come across a command in Scripture, you're reading your Bible in quiet time, listening to it in a sermon, hearing it somewhere. When you come across a command in Scripture, two things ought to happen immediately. First, you ought to do your best to make sure you rightly understand the command. Turn to the Spirit in prayer for wisdom, conviction, and power, and to other Christians for confirmation that the text means what you think it means. And second, you ought to obey as quickly as possible. It will always, there will always, there are ways that will take the rest of your life to learn and apply, but there are almost always simple ways to apply it now, to obey now, and we need to do that. I'm going to get even more specific. For instance, imagine that later this week you're reading through 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. If you were, you would find three straightforward commands in rapid succession. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Think of these two basic steps I gave you. It is good 
to take basic steps, prayer, seeking out a brother or sister in Christ, to make sure you understand what Paul means by rejoice, pray, give thanks, and all circumstances, keywords. After a brief inspection, you'll likely find that these words mean what you think they mean. There will be some lingering questions, if you understand them well, like how do I rejoice when a loved one dies, or how do I pray when I'm sleeping, or what does it look like to give thanks to someone who sins against me? There'll be some questions, but you do not need to have every one of those questions answered before you obey in the ways you already understand. Therefore, while acknowledging that fully obeying any of those requires a lifetime, that's what it means, always, without ceasing, in all circumstances. It's going to take your whole lifetime to fully obey these. You must acknowledge that you can and must start now. You read this passage this week, you take a moment and pray that the Spirit would draw to mind a gracious promise of God. The first one is rejoice always. God, help me to remember a gracious promise that you have fulfilled in my life and turn it back to God in joy. That's how you obey in that moment. Pray that the Spirit would draw to mind someone that that is in need, so pray without ceasing. Ask that the Spirit would draw to mind someone in need and ask God to give them mercy in that moment and send them a text message to tell them that you just did that. Obey. Pray that the Spirit would draw to mind the countless blessings of God in your life at that moment and thank Him for it. Obey. Give give thanks in all circumstances. And because each of these are meant to be obeyed perpetually, Immediately ask the Spirit to keep these things in your mind throughout the day. That's what Peter learned. Peter understood this much in that moment, even though he didn't understand everything. And so he offered himself to Jesus and surrendered obedience. But washing glory displayed, confused, and now explained. Jesus saw that Peter was gaining understanding on the surface matters, while simultaneously recognizing his lingering confusion. Consequently, Jesus continued to explain even the simple significance of the foot washing. But he did so, and I hope you could see this, as a means of introducing the deeper meaning of his words. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, to Peter, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not, not, all, not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. There's there's debate about what exactly Jesus was getting at here. But again, at the very least, he was pointing out two things. He was pointing out that Peter was still confused even on basic foot washing matters. And secondly, that there's more going on here than meets the eye. In all of this, we cannot miss the fact that Jesus was weaving a few threads in and out of his words and actions. Listen to this, Grace. On the surface, he was showing the disciples that an essential part of true love and glory is humility and sacrificial service. That's why he actually washed their feet. He didn't just talk about it or use it as a conceptual illustration, but he actually washed their feet. Likewise, another thread. On the surface, Jesus was establishing the fact that being his disciple meant acknowledging him as the highest authority over all earthly rulers and customs. That is why he demanded that the disciples allow him to break custom and wash their feet. But below the surface, again, as I hope you've seen, Jesus was really talking about a different kind of washing and a different kind of cleanliness. When he said, if if I do not wash you, you have no share with me, he was ultimately talking about the spiritual washing he would accomplish 
on the cross for all who believe. That is why he said that not every one of you, not every one of them was clean. He wasn't talking about the fact that Judas hadn't bathed that day. He was talking about the fact that he knew that Judas would soon betray him and demonstrate his lack of genuine faith. And it's also why of the rest of the disciples, he said, you, though, are clean, completely clean. For he knew that their faith was in him and that it was from the Father. Again, in ways that are not always entirely clear, Jesus was using actual foot washing to teach the virtue of humble sacrificial service and grace. This is the key to the whole passage. To teach about his imminent and ultimate act of humble sacrificial service, going all the way to the cross in love. That is, he was using his washing of their feet as a way of explaining his washing of their sin. Like most of what Jesus taught during his time on earth, this went over their heads to large measure. But John wrote this passage so that it wouldn't go over your head and mine, so that we would understand. And so, grace, serve, obey in all ways and at all times and in all places, and look to Jesus alone for the cleansing you need and that he alone can provide. That's the heart of this passage. Jesus, love to the end, all authority foot-washing, cross-going glory. But that has implications for us as well. And so finally, foot-washing glory is commanded. From there, the object lesson is complete. Jesus put on his outer garments and resumed his place and said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Clearly, no, sort of, but not really. Therefore, Jesus explained, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. Jesus said, I am the one to whom you turn for instruction, and that's good. You should do that. I am the one from whom you receive truth. That's good, and you should do that. And I am the one to whom you owe allegiance. That is right. You're you're right in these ways. I am your teacher and Lord. And so, Grace, this is how we wrap up this morning. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, verily, verily, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Coming back to the simplest and most straightforward thread, Jesus commanded his disciples to imitate him in displaying the unique glory of God and serving, and here's the key, across and down rather than just up. Our service, if it is truly to model that of Jesus, serves across and down and not just up. Worldly logic and priorities are such that some will serve. Service is not all that popular. But some will serve those who are above them, those who have the power over them or the means to reward them for their service. Jesus talks about who you invite to a banquet in this regard in Luke 14. But heavenly logic, Grace, is different. Jesus' example is different. It eagerly serves those who are equal and even more significantly, those who are, are lesser in human terms. And it does so as a living picture of what God does for those who will trust in his Son. God is above all, Grace Church. He is higher than all. And so his love is always a condescending love. Outside of himself, he can only love those below him. And to help the world know the nature of God's love, 
Jesus commanded his followers to love that way as well. On a practical level, as you know, foot washing doesn't mean quite the same thing in our culture as it meant in Jesus' day. The practical applications for us, therefore, are going to be a bit different. The heart of the matter is the same. Love to the end, humble, sacrificial service. Loving across and down even more than up. Do you want to reflect the glory of God, grace? Do you want to obey Jesus, hope in Jesus, and serve like Jesus? Older kids, let your younger brother and sister go first. Let them get the, get them a snack. Play games that they enjoy rather than forcing them to play your games. Parents, set aside your comfort, which in one sense you do a lot, but set aside your comfort when you don't need to, when it would be culturally acceptable for you not to. And read a book to your kids. Get down on the ground with them. Take them fishing or shopping when it would be more peaceful not to. Everyone, sit next to someone who is alone instead of one of your friends that would be easier. Greet someone new. Listen with genuine interest instead of talking about yourself. Have a new family over to your house for lunch. Volunteer to give a ride. Host host the children of an exhausted family with Together for Good or a struggling family through foster care. Do the dishes when it's not your night. I have three nights. That's a lot. Bring coats for the inmates. Help Chuck and Jennifer next weekend. Volunteer for a lowly job that no one will likely ever know that you did. Help out at Jericho Road Ministries, which we do a couple of times a year. Let Naomi know that you'll help with nursery, or Stephen know that you'll help with Grace for Kids. Work with the city to find ways to serve our neighbors. Grace, consider again the unique foot-washing glory of Jesus. Consider what it ultimately pointed to, and hear again the simple instructions of our Lord. I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. The big idea of this passage is that Jesus' glory includes love to the end, foot-washing glory. And the main takeaways are to learn to love true glory, to listen and obey Jesus in all things, and to follow Jesus' example in expressing humble servant love wherever we go. Failing to do those things is exactly why Jesus came. But his love is such that as we hope in him, he will forgive us entirely and love us unwaveringly. May we behold his glory and receive his forgiveness and love and then share those things with the whole world.